Once again, thank you so much for being here this morning and uh, being with us here at Freedom Baptist Church. Thank you for putting up with going through a difficult book, the book of Hebrews. <laughs> it is a difficult book. It's challenging. If you've not found it so, uh, so far, uh, I would be very surprised. But it's a challenging book for me uh, as a preacher. Um, today's is particularly challenging, I think, because... This scripture has so many implications and it has so many uh, things to think about and how this true tabernacle compares to the Old Testament tabernacle. It's just fascinating to think about it. But of course, one of the things that we've learned so far in going through the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He is greater. He's greater than the prophets of old uh, whoever you can think of in the Old Testament, Elijah, uh, Enoch, he's, he's a better prophet than them. He's mightier than the greatest angels. He's better than Moses, which if that doesn't strike you, uh, then you're not quite thinking like a Jew yet because to say that Jesus is better than Moses would have been a very, uh, it, it just would have been, very surprising for a Jew to hear that, and they probably would have a little bit of disbelief about that. Not only is he better than Moses, but the Mosaic law, those Ten Commandments, he is better than those. He offers a better rest than Joshua entered, Joshua offered. Joshua took the people eventually into the Promised Land. They, they conquered those lands, and they had rest for a period of time. But the rest that Jesus gives us, the eternal rest that he gives us, is far greater than that. At one time, the people of Israel tried to go back to Egypt, which symbolized going back to the world. We may be tempted at times to go back to the world, but Jesus is better. He's better than anything that the world has to offer. Amen. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. We've talked about this quite a bit. We're not quite finished talking about it. But he is better than the Levitical priesthood because he is a priest of a different order. He's a priest of the order of Melchizedek, a person who, at least in the scripture, is described as not having a beginning or an end, not having a mother or a father, but one who exists forever. And at this point in our study, the writer of the book of Hebrews said, I can't really go into Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek because you're Im too immature and some of you really may not be saved. So I can't go in and he was, he was saying, I can't go in and develop this deep doctrine about Melchizedek because you want to go back. You're showing signs of Im immaturity because you've heard about Jesus and yet you're trying to go back to the Old Testament laws and I've tried to explain why I think they were tempted to do that. They had sinned since they had heard about Jesus and in the Old Testament whenever you sin you had to order you had to offer a sacrifice so they were constantly wanting to go back to the Old Testament system and and try to offer sacrifices we do much the same thing even though we don't have the Old Testament law we don't have the tabernacle we don't have the sacrificial system but when we begin to lose faith or, or trust, we tend to go back to the old things and, and cling to them. And so we may go back 
to our old ways of living, and Jesus is better than that. We are not to go back. Uh, we should not drift away. We had an excellent listen, uh, lesson in Sunday school on being complacent in the book. The writer of the book of Hebrews is making the same point that we should not drift away from the faith. We can be like a boat in a harbor who gradually drifts away if we don't have an anchor, right? We need an anchor, and that anchor is Jesus Christ and his, his death on the cross for our salvation. And so these people, they were immature. They were stuck on the foundational principles. They were stuck on things like faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I say that uh, not to be uh, demeaning faith in Jesus Christ, obviously, but they seem to have to hear it over and over again as if they really weren't quite sure of their salvation. And so they lacked spiritual discernment. They were not bearing fruit. They were sluggish in the faith. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews, as I said, says you need to turn to Jesus who is the anchor for our soul. He has prepared the way for us. He has become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we found out that a greater priesthood was needed other than the Levitical priesthood in order to secure our salvation. We, we love and it's essential that we know that we are saved, right? <laughs> it really is. You know, I don't know, there are certain denominations. Who is going to go to the Muslims and share the gospel? You know, if, if you can lose your salvation, I think that there would probably be very few people who'd be willing to do that, but because we know that we are saved and that our, our eternal life is in heaven. We can take those risks and then we take those step of faith, steps of faith. We learned that Jesus, because he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, because he lives forever, verse 725 says that he is able to save to the uttermost or forever those who draw to, near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen, hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. That's one of my favorite ver verses of this book. It may be a key verse to this book. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, salvation is not just a once, one-time action that happens in our life. Yes, we need to believe and trust in Christ, and many of you can go back and point to that point in time where you did that. But our salvation really was not finished there because we still need to be sanctified. We still need to be glorified. But because Jesus lives forever, he is always interceding for us all through that part. All through that part. We need a high priest such as Jesus, and we have one. We have one in Jesus Christ. We have an exalted high priest, one who meets our every need. And that's who we are going to be talking about today in Hebrews chapter 8. So I hope you have your Bibles turned to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be reading the whole chapter. Uh, it's about 13 verses long. About half of it is a quote from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, which you should probably be familiar with. If not, you will be by the time you get through with the book of Hebrews because it continually points back to the old covenant and how much this new covenant that is expressed in Jeremiah 31, 
how important that is for us. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. And do uh, you follow along with me? I'm reading the English Standard Version. If you have that, then it'll be, uh, it'll be right in line with me. If not, you may have to interpret a little bit as you read, but that's okay. Verse number one. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to wreck the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declare the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach one, each one his neighbor, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to read these verses. And if a person is reading this through for the first time right now, they might be wondering what in the world is going on here. But we hope to, in the next few minutes, explain exactly what's going on here in a way that we can understand, in a way that really makes a difference in our life. It's just amazing what you have accomplished. You have given us a picture when we look at the tabernacle of the spiritual salvation that you are giving to us through Jesus Christ. And it's amazing. It points to the sovereignty of God. It points to the fact that God exists. And it shows that Jesus is truly the only way for us to be saved and be with the Father. So we need your help and we ask for your help. We pray that you will help us as we go through this. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you for standing and you may be seated. <clears throat> that, ver that last verse is very telling and it kind of speaks to what we have been talking about all along in the book of Hebrews. 
He's speaking about a new covenant, and this new covenant that is coming makes the first one obsolete. So the new covenant under Jesus Christ, the one he instituted with the Lord's Supper, it is coming at this particular time. It is coming into fruition, and the old one is going away. The old covenant of Moses and the sacrificial system is going away. It's about to vanish. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is right in saying you cannot go back to that. You cannot retreat back to that and expect there to be any salvation there for you. You must go forward with Jesus Christ. And that's something we must always be mindful, right? We must always be going forward in Jesus Christ, going into a deeper and deeper relationship with him. But let's go back to the first part of this chapter and see some of the things that he's trying to tell us about this old covenant and then the better covenant. Sometimes the old covenant is called the Mosaic covenant or the covenant of the law. Uh, we refer to it a lot of times just gene generically as the Old Testament. The New Testament is described in Jeremiah 31 and that was the part that we read starting with verse eight and nine. And so we go back to this and we'll, we'll be talking about both of those. We'll be talking also about a tabernacle and explaining exactly what that is. So hang on for the ride, okay? Because <laughs> it's going to be, it's gonna be uh, a good one. In this, we find out, first of all, that Christ is an exalted high priest of a heavenly and spiritual ministry, okay? So we know, about the Old we know about the Old Testament sacrifices, a little bit about that. We know that they actually had a place where they went to. It was called the tabernacle at first. And they would bring their animals to the tabernacle and offer their sacrifices. And that was to, to help ease their conscience and, and to forgive their sins in a certain way because all of this, the tabernacle, the sacrifices and everything point toward Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's one of the main points I want to try to get through today is that the tabernacle, the Old Testament system of sacrifices all pointed toward being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ because these sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be repeated over and over, right? Every day, probably, if, if we're honest with ourselves. Every day, if we were under the Old Testament sac uh, sacrificial system, we would probably be gathering up an animal, taking it to be sacrificed for some sin we had committed that day or that week. And so, in one sense, this system was broken because it required many, many, many sacrifices. Wouldn't it be better just to have one sacrifice to cover all those sins? And that's exactly what Jesus did. But this sacrificial, sacrificial system is pointing toward the time where Jesus would come. He is our perfect high priest of this heavenly and spiritual ministry. He's exalted over all other kings. Did you notice that? Did you notice where he is sitting? He is seated at the right throne, right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In other words, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. This is a place of authority. It's a place of power. It indicates that not only is Jesus high priest, but he has the power and authority to back up what he's doing. In no way is he going to fail in this. In no way 
can we entrust our salvation to him and he fail in any way, right? He will not fail. The only way we could lose our salvation is if Jesus Christ either fails in his task or somehow dies again. And as I said last week, that will not happen. He has eternally been resurrected. He will live forever. He will never die again for our sins. That is complete. He will never fail in his job, but he will always see it through. And so if you have feelings of doubt sometimes and feelings like, well, I don't really know that I am saved or not because I've not been doing this, I've not been doing that, you're looking at the wrong person. Jesus fulfilled all those good works for you and he died for your sin. And not only did he die for his sins, but all the good things that he did are what theologians called imputed to you. So because of Jesus, do we not only escape hell, but we have a reward, right? We will be rewarded. We have an inheritance. And that's the great thing about Jesus being our high priest is that he has accomplished this and is accomplishing this all for us. I believe that when we sin, Jesus is our advocate, that he intercedes on our behalf. And not to put it flippantly, but when God, maybe when Satan accuses us of our sin before God, I believe that Jesus steps in and says, I've got that covered. Amen. You know, and I don't mean to be flippant, but Jesus has us covered in every possible way. He will not give up. He will not forsake us. He is the one who has access to God. He sits at his right hand. And that is also a, a, a sign of God's favor toward Jesus. Jesus is acting upon and acting in God's, on his behalf. And so what he offers is a heavenly spiritual ministry. Uh, he's one who ministers to our spiritual needs in every way. The scripture says that he is the minister of the true tent. Let's see where that's at. Verse number two, he is a minister or a servant in the holy place in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Well, what's this true tent that he's talking about? <laughs> we need to figure that out, right? That's, to me, that's intriguing. What is this true tent? Well, let's talk about the other tent. Let's talk about the tabernacle, which is also called the tent of the meeting. This is what he's kind of referring to. He's just saying Jesus has a more better tent. He has a truer tent. So hang on with me just a little bit. Uh, there is a physical tabernacle that existed during the Old Testament times. The, tab the tabernacle <clears throat> was a movable tent of meeting that God commanded Moses to build. So if you could go back that first slide, the very first one. The tabernacle was built for the people of God, and this is obviously from a far distance away, but that pillar of fire is coming down to the tabernacle, and it allowed God to exist with his people and to be in a relationship with his people. All the different people that you see on the outsides of this pillar of fire with the tabernacle being the center are the people of God. They lived in tribes in certain areas around this tabernacle. 
And so a tabernacle was like a tent that was portable because the people who were in the wilderness and headed for the promised land, they would stay in one place for a while, then they would pick up and go. They had to move the tabernacle. They had to move all this so that God could go with them and his presence would be with them. The main purpose for this is that God wanted to dwell among his people, the Israelites. He wanted to have fellowship with them and be able to communicate with them. And that's how he did this, through this tabernacle. The tabernacle, you can go ahead to the, like the last one, Dave. This is a picture of the tabernacle, which we're going to go see in a couple weeks, right? On the 24th. See a life-size reproduction of this. The tabernacle and its courtyard were constructed according to a pattern set by God, not by Moses. And that's the true one. But this was the design that God gave to Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai that they were supposed to build. The tabernacle was built approximately 1440 BC. It was used from the time of the Exodus until the time of King Solomon when the temple was built in Jerusalem. The tabernacle was the center of the Israelite camp. And we mentioned earlier that the 12 tribes of Israel camped around in a special arrangement. And basically, it was a portable dwelling place for God. It could be picked up, moved, and then God's presence once again uh, would be in the tabernacle. Well, why do we spend so much time on the tab tabernacle? Well, we, we study the tabernacle to understand the steps that the Lord has laid out for a sinful people to approach a holy God. We have a problem don't we? We have a problem when it comes to being in the presence of God, and that is our ungodliness, our sinful nature. And so even during the time of the Old Testament, God could only be so close to his people because they were unholy. This sacrificial system allowed them to have their sins atoned for so that they could have a meeting with God, have fellowship with God. And so it's important for us to study this physical building because it relates to a spiritual truth that Jesus has made possible for us in the true tent that is in heaven. And so this, what I'm trying to say, this that you're looking at on the screen is a copy of a heavenly structure as well. Okay? Does that make sense? And... We know that Jesus, for instance, uh, remember when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Well, the tabernacle is just a precursor to the temple, and it's very similar to the temple in its construction. And so we study it so that we can understand what Christ has done for us. Today, believers are God's dwelling place, so we are his tabernacle. And I believe that plays into this example as well. God's holy presence is among us. As believers, we are part of the priesthood, just like Jesus is part of the priesthood as well. And this tabernacle shows the pattern of worship prescribed by God. But this picture that you're looking at and the actual tabernacle when it was construction is only a copy or a shadow of the real thing. So a copy, we know what a copy is. You put a copy on a copier machine and it makes a perfect copy, right? 
Well, it's not always perfect. What if, the, what if it were a black and white copier and you had a color, co color piece of paper? Then you don't get all the use, you don't get all the beauty of the original copy. So this tabernacle that was built by Moses, the actual physical one, is a copy or only a shadow of the one that is heavenly or spiritual. So a shadow, you can see many shadows around here. Maybe you can see your own shadow. You can kind of sort of see an outline. Maybe you can recognize even someone by their shadow. But you don't get the color because all shadows are gray. You don't get the three-dimensional aspect. And that's the way that this tabernacle is. There is a physical tabernacle that Moses built, but there is a spiritual tabernacle that it represents and that was built by Jesus, the true tabernacle. So we see, we can see a picture like this, but it's in no way as glorious as what Jesus has done for us. We know that Jesus as a high priest, it says that every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's as necessary for this priest to have something to offer. What did Jesus offer as his sacrifice? His own blood, right? Remember the story of the Day of Atonement. The high priest during the Day of Atonement would need to take a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies for all of the people. And so the animal would be slaughtered and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would spread the blood upon the altar, upon the uh, ark. And uh, so Jesus, as opposed to that, enters into heaven where he offers his blood to God as a payment for our sins. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? <laughs> it's a lot to think about. So Christ is the mediator of a new covenant and Christ is the minister of a new and superior covenant. Let's go on and talk about this covenant for a little bit before we close. What is a covenant? Anyone have a description of covenant? Contract. Contract. You said contract. Okay. Anybody know that there are similarities? Anyone know the difference between a contract and the covenant? Okay, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of important, so you might want to remember this, take a note, jot it down a little bit. Contracts deal with material things. Contract generally refers to, if you do this, uh, then you will get so much money. If you don't do this, then you need to reimburse me or you need to give me product back. So it, it, mainly it has to do with, with the distribution of goods or materials. A contract is similar in that it's agreement between two or more people, but it's about relationships instead of money or material things. It's all about the relationships and that's what God, God has many covenants that he has made throughout the Bible. He made a covenant with Abraham, remember that? He said, if you follow me, I will bless you. I will make a great nation of you. I will bless the earth with uh, descendants like the stars of the heaven. That's the, that's the covenant that he made with Abraham. He made, a, he made a covenant with the people of Israel, the Mosaic covenant. 
He made a covenant with David uh, and said that a descendant of yours will sit on the throne of the kingdom of God. So it's a covenant. It's like a contract, but it deals primarily with relationships. And the outcome is that the, the parties have a faithful, loyal love for each other. That's what keeps the, co the covenant. <laughs> what keeps the contract is a fear of losing, losing material goods or losing money. What keeps the, con the covenant is love that you develop for each other. And that's exactly what God wants with us, right? He wants a loving relationship with us. He doesn't want a contract. He wants a loving relationship with us. And this is the sign of the new covenant. The new covenant is founded by this perfect mediator who is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This covenant, this new covenant, is founded on better promises. And the promises are what we read from Jeremiah 31. We'll talk about those a little bit. But the old covenant had its faults, didn't it? Even though it was designed by God, I say it has its faults. Uh, it actually was not. It was our fault. <laughs> it was our fault. The people of Israel entered into this covenant whereby they were given the Ten Commandments. They were given certain things that they were to do in exchange. God would take care of them and bless them. The problem was that we could not keep the covenant. We could not keep the Ten Commandments even. We could not keep the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments and whether you have broken those this week. You probably have broken those Ten Commandments, at least one of them this week, many, probably many, that we have broken. And so there was a problem with the covenant. Not Actually, the covenant did exactly what it was supposed to do. <laughs> it pointed out our sin. It pointed out our need for a Savior. And so we needed a new covenant, and Christ is the minister of this new covenant. We've already read some of this, so I'll not read all of it again. But God's desire is to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that means he wants to do that with us. It's about relationships. It's about faithful, loyal love for one another. He loves us. We love in return because of his gift and his grace that he has given us. It's founded on these promises that we have read, and it eliminates the weakness of the first covenant. The weakness of the first covenant was us. We could not fulfill the covenant. We could not keep it perfectly. All these sacrifices had to be made, and even in that, we could not do it perfectly. Can you imagine killing an animal for every time you sinned? <laughs> it, would be, it would be tremendously hard to do that. And the example of this weakness is Israel. They, they forever promise to obey God and follow him, and yet they always step back, and they all, always failed in the end. And so the solution is this new covenant. And let me tell you what is amazing about this covenant. Some people have termed it as being unconditional. It's more like it's uniconditional. 
Here's the good news of the new covenant. God fulfills all of the conditions of the covenant. <laughs> There's no part for us to fill. And you might say, that doesn't sound right. Aren't we supposed to do good works? Yeah, we do those in response to our changed lives because of Jesus Christ saving us. But they're not a condition of the covenant. It eliminates the weaknesses and it the covenant is provided by God. It's uniconditional. I don't even know if that's a word, but I made it up for this. It means that it's one-sided. The old covenant tended to work from the external. External laws, external rules, regulations that we had to follow. But this new covenant works from the inside. It's an inward power. It's a spiritual power. Verses 10 through 12 say, For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and I write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It's an inward power given by the Holy Spirit. So we are given the Holy Spirit when we believe and trust God he is the one who is meeting the conditions of, these, of this covenant. He is the one who gives us the promise of a renewed mind and a heart. And we've talked about this many times before. Why do my friends, why do my relatives not accept Christ? Most of the time it is not a knowledge problem, right? I mean, if you are a faithful Christian, you probably have shared the gospel with them. They know the gospel. It is a heart problem. Same thing with the people of Israel. Their hearts were always going after God's. They were always, always trying to include God, but then they would go to the Baals and worship him as well. It was a divided heart. The new covenant provides a remedy for that. God says, I'll give them a new heart which will love me and I will renew their mind. And you might say, well, when, are, when is our minds being renewed? Well, hopefully right now. Hopefully right now. Hopefully in Sunday school class. Hopefully when you're having your devotion. Hopefully when you are uh, having Bible study, your mind is being renewed after the word of God. And he promises that he will do this. So have no fears. <laughs> You may say, my mind is not ready for all this, but your mind will be ready for this. He will renew your mind and your heart. It's just tremendous what God can do. Amen. And we should, be there, we should be very thankful. And I think some people get extremely nervous when I start talking about God giving us a new heart because they feel like somehow that is taking away from our free will. But our free will, remember, always, uh, before we are Christian, always chooses the evil way. You know, that's, that's scripture. Read Revelation chapter, or, uh, Romans chapter 3. No one go does good. No one seeks after God. That's what the testimony of the Bible says. So we need this new heart. We need a new heart. And God get, has promised to give it to us. 
And if you are a believer here today, he has given you a new heart. That's probably why you are here. That's probably why you take the time to pick up your Bible and read it and see what God has to say to you that day. It's because you have a renewed heart. Now, unfortunately, in our situation, we have a mind that's been influenced by our culture. And so we have the right heart. We have the capability of doing good because we have a new heart. But there are parts of our mind that need to be informed by the scripture. And so scripture says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We need to be in the word of God so that our heart who has a desire can do the right thing. It also in these verses, there's the power of fellowship and communion with God. Look at the latter part of verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on my heart. And then I will be their God and they shall be my people. How do you feel when God says, you are my people? It's a tremendous thing, isn't it? It's an awesome thing. I think about the Old Testament times uh, and the people of Israel. The, the people of Israel was a tiny country, and yet they were God's people. They were his prized possession. We have that same privilege under the new covenant, that God is our God and we are his people. And I think those verses, if you read between the lines a little bit, show that God is exclusively our God and we are exclusively his people. It's a closeness that we could never have experienced under the Old Testament laws and sacrificial system. There's a promise of open access into God's presence. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. If you are a believer in Christ, you know God. And I don't know if I can... The way I interpret this is that one day in the new millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, every person will know God personally. It's a great promise. Then finally, there's a promise of forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Amen. Did I hear amen? <laughs> I think we all relish this promise. We know how sinful we are, right? <laughs> we know what kind of people we are, but we also know where we have come from. We are being sanctified by Jesus Christ to become more holy. But regardless of how holy we become in this lifetime, it will never be perfection in this lifetime. And so we will always need the forgiveness of God. And I'm so thankful that he is a God who is gracious and merciful and bounding in steadfast love and that he forgives his people. Verse 13 pretty well sums it up. 
in speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. It's not needed anymore. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we no longer need the Ten Commandments. He's talking specifically about the old sacrificial laws. We don't need the tabernacle anymore. We don't need uh, all of the furniture that went along with the tabernacle. We don't need all that because we have Jesus, a high priest who has entered into the presence of God, who has given his own blood for us, presented it to God as a payment for our sin, and we have eternal relationship with him. And so the old sacrificial system is no longer needed. That's why we, we don't do that anymore, right? <laughs> we don't offer sacrifices. Now we try to, we try to, if we fail in some way, sometimes instead of running and asking for forgiveness and repenting, we try to do something, right? And it's good to do stuff, but not as a means of gaining forgiveness from God, right? So we have to be careful not to fall back into works, works type mentality. So I know we've gone on, we'll close right now. Old covenant or new? Which do you pick? <laughs> new, right? We pick the new. We don't want to live under the old covenant. Although the old covenant was instituted by God through Moses, it was good. All it did was point out our need for Christ and the new covenant. Under the old covenant, we're powerless. It demonstrates our own sin to us, but it gives no remedy. I've used this illustration before, but... The old covenant is like a mirror that you look into and you can see all the imperfections in your face, but you can't take the mirror down off the wall and scrub your face with it, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It was never meant to work that way. What we need is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your scripture. and. There's so much more that could be said about this, but I pray that you would help us, maybe this afternoon, go back and read over this and think about the implications. The implication that we have a high priest who is qualified, who is highly exalted, and he intercedes on our behalf before God continually, 24-7. And that's the reason why we have eternal life and cannot lose it. We've entrusted our eternal life to you and you take that commitment seriously and you will in no way let go of us or let us go back to the world. Even at the, at the sake of disciplining us, you will do that, that we might stay with you. Father, help us to persevere in the faith. It gets hard sometimes. It's hard for us. There's so many attractions out in the world. There's so much coming against us, it seems like. But sometimes it would be easier just to release and go back. But there is no going back for us. And when we think about it, we don't want to go back. We have a high priest interceding for us who loves us, wants to have a loving faithful relationship with us. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than Jesus. Amen.